welcome watchers and listeners to the ICA Health and Wellness Committee's uh, podcast series with Erin Finkerstein. Thank you, Erin, for accepting the invitation to this episode. Thanks for having me. Uh, let me introduce you to the audience a little bit. Erin Finkerstein helps people transform their limitation into opportunities to move, think, and perform easier with more joy through somatically informed movement. She is a classically trained musician and a guild certified Feldenkrais practitioner with over 20 years of professional experience performing clarinet. She's a member of the Carmel Bach Festival in California, Urban Nocturnes, an, an ensemble in residence at Trinity Cathedral in downtown Phoenix, and can be heard regularly with Arizona Opera and the Phoenix Symphony. She has been on faculty at the University of the Pacific, California State University, and Glendale and Phoenix Community Colleges. In her private practice in downtown Phoenix and online worldwide, Erin has helped hundreds of people from all professions, ages, and walks of life to learn how to move with more ease and perform pain-free. She has weekly awareness through movement classes and courses online, and has an upcoming jaw course online from November 14th to 19th. She will start a class just for musicians in January 2023. So welcome, Erin. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So you are a certified Feldenkrais practitioner. Um, let's start with that. How, how did you find Feldenkrais? Uh, why Feldenkrais? And how did it help you? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I was a student at Arizona State University, and um, I had been taking quite a bit of yoga at that time to try to address certain issues that I had um, tension-wise, um, and the class was full, and so I signed up for this other class that was called Awareness Through Movement, and in that class, it transformed the way that I performed the way that I felt about myself, the way that I moved with my instrument. And I decided to do a training program right after my master's program. Yeah. Nice. So yeah. you did your master's at ASU, right? I did. Nice. Um, how did it help you transform? So what were some of the things that you felt were uh, transformation-wise revelatory to you? Well, I had had a lot of jaw pain um, previous to my master's program, actually, and kind of started my journey then. I hadn't taken a Feldenkrais class yet, but I had very, very debilitating TMJ when I was 19, um, TMJ disorder, and um, I was jetting my jaw forward, not knowing what I was doing, and um, got to the point where I couldn't really even play. Um, and so I went through this process with myself of re-educating uh, how I move, what I saw, and learned how it didn't match with what I sensed, and I ultimately was able to fix my jaw pain. But later, um, in awareness through movement classes, I learned how to actually really sense myself in a way that I hadn't before. I was trying to solve a lot of tension problems through doing, practicing well, practicing the right way, um, but I just didn't have enough information at that point about how I was designed and how the skeleton is really designed to help be a support in movement and 
in small muscle groups to large muscle groups. So um, that was kind of the beginning of the transformation for me. Um, but it was also my mind and my relationship with my instrument that it really addressed and really helped me become sort of a more of a whole person rather than just a clarinetist, which I was very, very, very focused on at that at that time. Absolutely. So I sense that the key to your story is awareness, yes. awareness of what you where your stance about your whole body, not just the clarinet and you and the music, but everything else that encircles yeah. that whole uh, profession. Um, how is Feldenkrais different from other somatic um, branches like the Alexander Technique, uh, body mapping, or anything else that you might be familiar with? So how, well, how does it uh, stick out from the yeah. Hegel? It's a great question. And I, I'll answer it just by telling you about the Feldenkrais method, um, because I don't like to compare it necessarily because it's a little apples to oranges, saxophones to clarinets, everything has a wonderful piece to this uh, human development that you know all these wonderful teachers have come up with. So Feldenkrais was a scientist in the 20th century, and he actually came from a martial arts background but he worked in the Marie Curie labs. And if you don't know who she was, she was actually the first woman who to uh, win a Nobel Peace Prize. Fascinating, fascinating person. And he had a debil debilitating knee injury um, that every once in a while it would just go out. And um, he went to his doctors and they said, well, we could do knee surgery, but that's going to be about a 50% chance that it's going to be healed. And as a scientist, he said, those are just not the odds that I want to take with my, my very physical body. So he started this process of investigating how he moved and applied scientific principles to it. So physics, how am I taking weight? And if, I, if I'm fine and then I take one more step and it goes out, what did I do differently? He was also married to a pediatrician at that time who helped him kind of work and watch children and see, well, what are the conditions in their nervous system that helps them learn how to move? Because essentially that's what he wanted to do. He knew that he could walk without pain. And so he started to develop what we now call awareness through movement lessons. And he left us with about 500 different lessons, huge body of work that are verbally guided. But additionally, he started working with a lot of the scientists that were at a desk all day long, not in front of a computer yet, but they were reading and writing and complaining of, you know, all these aches and pains, right, from being immobile. So he started working with people hands-on and actually very gently helping their nervous systems feel what habits are were present there and how to change those habits so that's called functional integration and that's what i do here in downtown phoenix this is this is my office where people come and and we have we work on all sorts of issues so he's he worked with you know his colleagues but then he starts to really grow that and worked a lot with children of cerebral palsy i also work with kids um, quite a bit and so it's incredibly dynamic work um, learn, really learning how to learn. That's kind of the key of the method. So I don't, I don't know how it differs so much from other yeah. tech, but I think that's the main thing is that we teach people how to learn. Feldenkrais said, I'll be your last teacher because through this work, you're going to learn what you need to do in your nervous system to be your own teacher. 
So how, how does the uh, uh, approach to work with the nervous system go? Through exercises or movement habits? What is the approach of Feldenkrais? So awareness through movement lessons are uh, verbally guided and actually they were broadcast over the radio um, in the last century. It was very interesting. Okay. Um, so I think both in Germany, Germany and in uh, Israel. And we start usually with um, a scan and, and some reference movement. So every single movement that you make, consciously or unconsciously, is a habit in your nervous system. You don't think about it anymore. If you thought about every habit that you made, just sitting here and talking the way that you do, you wouldn't be able to move, right? The, the definition of a habit is something that becomes automatic. So we usually start with a reference point of some kind. You know, for a clarinet player, it would be something clarinet related. And we sense and we see, we just bring our awareness to just feel how you do that. Feel how you bring your instrument up, to slow the movements down so you become aware of what your habit is. Not to judge it, but just to become aware of it. Then in awareness through movement, the, the verbally guided lessons, Feldenkrais takes you through variations on possibilities to that movement. So we all have blind spots in the way that we move. Either they're good or bad, it doesn't matter, but they're blind spots. So he puts the nervous system into a state that's really uh, makes you aware of all of these different things to consider, like the weight, the length, how you sense yourself in space, how one area of your body relates to another area of your body, how maybe if you put a constraint into a movement, what does that create somewhere else? So he really figured how, out how the brain, the deeper brainstem, learns how to move. And that's not the same as your cognitive brain, right? The cognitive part of your brain is the one that taught you how to speak. But when we're talking about changing movement patterns, whether it's to address tension or a myriad of issues, the, that part of your nervous system is the same part of your nervous system that taught you how to walk when you were one years old. So you didn't say to yourself when you were one years old, I, I'm gonna get up and walk today, today's the day. Your nervous system played with gravity. It's been playing with gravity since you were born and it starts to make these neural connections in your brain. And through that discovery and that exploration, you get stronger and the patterns of movement get stronger in your skeletal system. And eventually you take your first step. If you've ever watched a baby take their first step, it is not fast, right? It is like watching time move backwards. So in these awareness through movement lessons, we really emphasize going extremely slow and it's extremely soft and not the full range of the, of the movement. Part of the reason is there's this principle called the Weber-Fechner principle in physiology. And that principle states that when your stimulus in your nervous system is too high, you cannot perceive a difference. So I think about you know, playing in a loud orchestra, right? If somebody plays just that much louder right behind you, you're not going to actually perceive the difference because the stimulus in your own perception is so high. So one thing we do is we reduce the stimuli in the nervous system and teach people how to do that so that they can start to sense themselves differently 
and sense how they might be able to move differently, to release tension, to play more effectively, to play with more joy. I see. Well, I, I can see a resemblance in the, uh, from the Alexander Technique, which is um, Alexander, FM Alexander talk, uh, um, calls it an inhibition, is mm -hmm. when you stop doing what you do and then decide really if that's the way you should be doing that or there's another way a more effective way more functional way to do uh to doing that uh but uh i, I see a lot of um a part of awareness self awareness that will eventually guide the participant to finding a better movement more efficient movement um, thank you um So, Feldenkrais to specific clarinetists, and you are a clarinetist yourself. How how would a, a, a Feldenkrais a practitioner be able to help a clarinetist who might have some an either jaw uh, problem or or carpal tunnel or some other um, um, clarinet related um, injuries or pain? That uh, there is prevalent on clarinetist. How does how does Feldenkrais help with that? Yeah, it's a great question. So you know, I I don't know that I've met a clarinetist who hasn't dealt with some kind of issue at some point, and and that's true actually for most or many many if not most musicians because what we do is is so awkward actually, um, hold, holding this instrument in one way for a long time and over time those tissues wear down and. We compensate in different ways, but I think that there is a fundamental principle to the Feldenkrais method that everyone can start to use right away. And that is that you have a skeleton inside of you and that skeleton is stronger than any tissue. If you wrap your bones up when you die and, and you know mummify, those bones will last for thousands of years. We know this to be true. But as clarinet players, we get very, very, very concerned with our fingers and, um, and even our embouchure being correct. Um, but I like to draw people in deeper to how their skeleton is organized in space because we know we're supposed to sit up straight. We know we're supposed to have good posture. But most people don't honestly know what that is because they can't sense it. So I invite the audience right now if you tell yourself to sit up straight, what do you do? Try it. When you sit up straight, a lot of people tighten the front of themselves, they pull their shoulders back. And then my next question is always, are you comfortable? Can you breathe? Usually the answer is no. And that's because people are trying to sit up from a place that's muscular rather than from the knowledge that your pelvis can move, that things move with the pelvis once you mobilize and free your hip joints. So that's one of the first things that I have people just try to discover is, for instance, you're, most everyone is probably sitting somewhere listening to this podcast. Well, on the bottom of your pelvis, you have two bones called the sitting bones. And I ask people to sense, can you feel those sitting bones? And if you can't, take a hand, sit on your hand, and it becomes very clear. That sitting bone is like, a, is like a rocking horse. It's designed to move. And so through very slow exploration, you can start to discover, oh, what happens 
to my breathing when I tilt my pelvis backwards and just start to discover and play. So when we're dealing with an acute pain, we want to fix it, right? Everybody wants to fix it, but there's no magic pill for fixing um, something like tendonitis. You might be able to help the inflammation, for instance, or with jaw pain, uh, jaw clicking, or um, you know, mismanagement of your embouchure. Some people just don't have teeth that line up correctly in their mouth. So how do you start to actually work with that rather than trying to fix it? Because the goal in Feldenkrais is never actually to fix anything. It's to have a clearer relationship with your habits and how to change them and how to use your skeletal movements, which can be very strong. It's not that the muscles aren't involved, but it's starting to coordinate the, the big extensor and flexor mass muscles to, in order to let the small muscles do what they're designed to do, which is to move freely. When we're not organized in our trunk, when we don't know what we're sensing in there, then the small muscles have to do the work. They just do. And I'm happy to um, guide you through a tiny exploration to show you this, if, if you're up for that, if the audience is up for that. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so if you're on um, a soft chair, I would move to a hard chair. And what I want you to do is just have that idea that the pelvis is a bowl and the bottom of the pelvis is like a rocking horse. So for a moment, just rock the pelvis backwards so that you really let yourself slouch. And that's the way this, the spine is designed to move. And if we don't ever let ourselves do that, I'm not talking about with the clarinet, this is just aside from the clarinet. If you never let your spine do that, then that means you probably have quite a bit of tension somewhere. So I want you to let yourself slouch backwards for a moment and just raise your hands and then feel how light or heavy they are. And just do that a few times. You might need to close your eyes if you're not used to sensing yourself this way and just feel how heavy they are. And then go ahead and let your, yourself roll your pelvis forward so that you really feel those sitting bones again underneath you. Again, this is why you wanna do this on a firmer chair. And then take the bowl and actually roll it forward a little bit. And you'll see even that my head naturally goes up. And then do the same thing, raise your arms a little bit and feel. You might feel that the movement is quite different in parts of your arm. And now find the in-betweens, find the place where you feel the sitting bones, we call them your feet in sitting, are right underneath you. And then go ahead and, and feel how light your arms are. It was a very sort of quick uh, little exploration, but I do this with people all the time to get them to realize that stretching doesn't necessarily help with things like um, tension in your arms, but when you start to really coordinate the movement of your, your spine and your skeleton, it's an almost immediate change that can happen in terms of the tension of your small muscle groups. And that goes all the way up to your jaw as well. So I have just a follow-up question to that exercise. Why do the arms feel um, lighter when you're actually uh, putting the weight of your body through the sit bones? Great question. Because 
fundamentally, we are just an object in space. We might think of ourselves as much more than that, but gravity never takes a day off. And gravity is always, always there. And so if you think of yourself as say like a bookcase or something, you know, if you have a bookcase that's slightly bendable and you, you take the gravity and you change maybe the top of the bookcase bends forward a little bit and that's where it stays. Well, that means that gravity is no longer working efficiently through the big, big central skeletal muscles. And that, and that means that something somewhere else has to work all the time to keep you upright, to keep your head from falling forward. It's the same thing with if you're really tilted backwards. I used my, my habit that I didn't know I had was I sat in front of my sit bones all the time in extension because I had a broken tailbone from childhood that I didn't realize. Well, that, that caused me to always have a certain amount of tension in my breathing because the gravitational force was not going efficiently right through the middle of myself, like a bookcase, right? I had a piece of myself that was bent forward. And so therefore my back was working really hard and my diaphragm wasn't able to really be utilized to its fullest capacity. Simple changes like that can just change how gravitational force goes through you and then the design of the small muscles can be small muscles. Same thing with the head. The head is a teleceptor. It's designed to move. The eyes are designed to move in different directions from the head. I have an article about this on my blog, but clarinet, what do clarinet players do? We all go forward in our occiput and you'll see in the back of a, I'll just show you with a little scope, my little skull here, that the spinal column comes out the bottom here but when your neck is for, when your head is forward, just that tiny degree, your your the the weight of the head has now left the center of gravity from over the sit bones, and the head, with all everything inside of it, weighs about ten pounds. So as you come forward, that weight goes into the small muscles and into the jaw. So one thing I do immediately with people is have them practice. And, and this goes for professionals as well. I have professionals who have pension problems, practice after, after a session, practice bringing the clarinet to their mouth as slowly as they can so they can feel what they do. Because it's not enough to say, don't do something. You have to feel what you do in order to change it. No one else can feel it. And that's where that, that Weber Fetchner principle comes in to slow it down so much that you can become aware of, I had no idea that there's a moment where I feel like somebody else is controlling my body. Well, it's your own nervous system, but you just have to become aware of what those habits are. Yeah. Absolutely, and awareness is key to that. Yes. And working with the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, neurological system, right? Yeah. Um, Thank you for that, um, the exercise and walkthrough. Um, in your profession, you mentioned clarinetist and some of the habitual things we might be doing um, as, as instrument dependent things, as well as musicians. In your experience of over 20 years, what have you seen that clarinetists uh, usually deal with 
tendonitis is a big one and you know neck straps can help but ultimately finding out how to coordinate the middle of yourself is probably the long-term you know uh, thing to try to do better um, jaw problems are always an issue um, joint problems become an issue at some point and I think breathing is a big one because we're taught from a really early age to breathe from our diaphragm, don't let the shoulders move. There are, but there are some anatomical things that happen. I mean, everywhere you have ribs, which is from way down right above your waist, the next thing you feel is rib, but all the way up, all the way to the top of your, right underneath your chin. You have your clavicle and then right underneath there, everybody can try that. You can feel your first rib is actually all the way up there. And people don't realize that. And I bring that up because the ribs uh, encase the lungs and the lungs have to expand. And that means all the way, all the way up here. So when we use our full capacity to breathe forward, backwards, sideways, up and down, your shoulders are gonna move up a little bit. So one thing that I see all the time with clarinet players is tension in the shoulders. And I have tension in the shoulders as well. But the idea that the, the ribs underneath the shoulder blades, you can feel them in your armpit, those are your upper ribs. When those are nice and full and to their, their capacity, the shoulders are generally a little higher than what we might've been taught in sixth grade band, right? That some of us who were really achievers and wanted to do the right thing took every word very literally. And so it's an important thing to realize that when you're breathing efficiently, your shoulders are actually gonna move a little bit and that's a good thing. So that's, those are, I think the main things. Um, also, obviously in standing, there are some other considerations with the pelvis and the feet. And again, having that idea that you're, you're supported from a deeper place within your skeleton can be really beneficial for all of these things. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, you mentioned the actual attention as some general characteristic to clarinetists. Um, how could you approach, how would you approach shoulder tension uh, with a clarinetist from the perspective of Feldenkrais? What are some, some of the exercises or well, awareness exercises that they can do um, or start exploring themselves? Great. So um, there are a couple of things about, um, about the word tension that I just want to mention. So tension is use colloquial, um, I can't say that word, in the, just amongst people to kind of mean like it's uncomfortable. But what tension really is, is, is a, uh, a lengthening. And a lengthening, because think of a rope, when you have a rope on two ends and you, and you pull the rope tight, it's to its fullest length. Most people feel a tightening or a shortening when they describe tension. So I tell people right away that there is a relationship and a correlation between tension and compression inside of yourself. When the front half of yourself is folding or compressing, the back can lengthen or have more tension. So 
I get people right away to go into their spinal system and start to learn how it's designed to move. So one thing everyone can do right away is to put a hand on your upper ribs, right in the front of yourself where your sternum is or your breastbone. And you can put your hand um, about right below your belly button. And as you allow the pelvis to kind of roll backwards like we did earlier, I want you to think that your two hands are gonna to come together but on the same plane. So let your head actually look towards the ground and think to yourself, you are compressing the front of yourself and lengthening the back of yourself. Most people go, oh, it feels good. <laughs> There's a reason why we slouch because that's the way we're designed. That's one way we're designed to move. And now when you come upward, think that your, your hands are coming, are coming away from each other, but on the same plane. And you can actually let the head look up a little bit and do that several times on your own and see, can you find the place that might feel stuck, right? There's a moment where maybe mm, it doesn't go, the, the rib cage doesn't soften. So I really encourage you to just let, the, let yourself exhale, let this really soften and see how much can you round your spine? How, can, how much can you almost let the rib cage concave? Because again, the ribs are actually designed to move. It's a rib basket, not a cage. A cage is something designed to not let you move. Okay, so then just let your hands down for a moment and, and just feel what your shoulders feel like after doing that. You feel like they can let go a little bit. Most people feel that for a moment. Another thing for shoulders, again, is your upper ribs. So I'm gonna have you take your hand and put it in your armpit of the other arm. And I want you to feel your upper ribs. Okay, so with this nice soft hand. Now you can take your shoulder and very slowly raise it towards your ear. And then find, you can find even some more ribs, even a little bit higher. And once you have those ribs, I want you to actually breathe into your hand and start to feel that those ribs can start to move. And once you have sort of a fuller sensation in your upper ribs, let the arm, let the shoulder relax on top of those ribs. Yeah. And then take the hand out and just feel the difference between the two. Do you feel a difference? Again, if you're not sure at first, that's okay because we're overstimulated most of the time. So learning how to sense differences takes a while. The other thing is to change your orientation to gravity. So the system really learns better from lying down, doing something not habitually. So when you lie on the ground, you can do the same tilt of the pelvis and see where does it go? How does that change the pattern of pressure that you make on the floor? Those are some things that I like to help people with right away. But some of it is really breaking through this mindset that everything that you've been told is true, right? Because musicians, we just do what we do and we pass that along to our students. But anatomically, 
you want to have a really full, flexible rib cage, and that helps the shoulders not overwork. So thinking about front and the back and the relationship between when you're compressing and when you're extending and finding out, discover the places that you might need a little more attention that might need permission to soften. We have to remember that when we breathe, the rib cage has to move, right? So hopefully that's a few key things. I have about a million other things <laughs> regarding Absolutely. the shoulders, but yeah. just a few ideas that are new. Yeah. So a compression and lengthening. When we compress, we exhale, right? You can. When we, when we let our hands come closer or it doesn't have to be. So that's a great question. So breathing is so dynamic. Breathing actually doesn't, there's not a one way to breathe. And I teach breathing lessons, about 20 different breathing lessons that bring you through the, all the possibilities of breathing. So it is possible that it might feel easier to exhale as you fold, but try it. Try inhaling as you fold. For me, I, I feel something different in my back. It's really about being your own scientist and discovering for yourself how to move and how to follow your internal sensation. And I think that's the main, probably the main difference between Feldenkrais and anything else that I know is that I don't teach anyone how to breathe correctly anymore. In fact, I was just playing with someone recently who was kind of having a little bit of a panic attack um, through just ha having a little bit of asthma issue. And, and I, I told this person to, to let yourself slouch a little bit because there's a body pattern of anxiety that is not in our conscious control. It is part of your fight or flight system. So if you are having an asthma attack or some other kind of mental anything, stage fright, to actually go with the pattern first. So agree with your nervous system and say, yeah, I'm having this issue. I'm just gonna connect and fold a little bit because that's what's happening anyways. And when you agree with the system first and forget about breathing correctly or deeply or whatever, breathe high, breathe wherever you feel movement, then no problem. He got through the situation, got through the concert fine. But the interesting thing was the, the comment was, I'm, I'm not breathing how I was, how I'm supposed to. But in the moment, what is supposed to mean? It doesn't mean anything. The moment is all we have as musicians. We are the moment. So we have to have more tools in the moment because Whatever we are going through internally, mentally, physically is manifested immediately in our music making. So sometimes we have to take, take ideas and know that there are times when those ideas won't work and how to be spontaneous, how to shift into what we need to do in this moment to make this moment the most beautiful musical moment or whatever the intention of the, of the moment is. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so we talked a little bit about upper extremities and um, 
in my career I have seen a lot of people with pronated feet mm-hmm. and I have learned from actually a Feldenkrais practitioner many years ago that can throw off uh, um, um, pelvis balance um, and knees and the rest of the breathing apparatus and, and the body um, have you seen that as a common uh, problem with musicians pronated feet or that's not really prevalent well i think that there's probably a lot of people that have that situation but maybe just as many people who don't i mean i've not done that specific of us of a of a look at that per se but i what i what I, you bring up a really interesting thing though which is what what are we after right so like what is really good health so if somebody comes into my studio, which many people do who have scoliosis, what is my goal with somebody who has scoliosis? My goal is not to make their spine straight. It's not to make them symmetrical. And that was a big, big thing that Feldenkrais believed in was that when he asked people, what is health? You know, they came up with all these different ideas, da, 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 rattled it off. And his response was, health is, is the ability to recover in any moment. So I remember someone in my training program who had a very severe scoliosis um, and he was later in life and he taught himself how to run. And it was, it was such an education that any limitation you have, pronated feet, uh, TMJ problem, scoliosis, that these things don't have to be limitations. In fact, they can become opportunities to know yourself better and to be even more of an artist of yourself. So actually I have a free um, ebook and I, it's called Attention Tamer ebook. And I call it being the artist of your own movement vitality because I, we get very attached to, again, fixing ourselves or changing something and, oh, that'll fix, that'll fix whatever it is. But I'm really more interested in helping people with their process and having a, a, a really strong relationship with their, their own artistic process, no matter what their limitation is or their perceived limitation or the limitation that somebody else told them. So the ability to be flexible within your own self-image is a key core Feldenkrais practitioner uh, principle, Feldenkrais principle. Thank you. So how would you um, define this discovery process as you help people um, turn, let's say, challenges, pain, um, uh, physical challenges to their benefits? How, how, How long would it take for a person? And I'm talking about generally, obviously we can um, talk about specifics, but generally is that uh, six to 10 sessions with a Feldenkrais practitioner, three months, six months, one year, how would you, how could you define? It's a good, it's a really good question. And it's a, it's a dynamic answer because it's kind of the, the first session is a discovery process. It is a, is there, is there a quick fix for you? Not, fi- I hate that word fix, but is there something right now you can learn that, you know, sometimes people come to me right before an audition, okay? And I'm not gonna go in and change every habit in their nervous system. I'm just not gonna do that two weeks before an audition because that's not gonna serve them. That's not gonna serve their anything about the process. 
but they might have something that they can gain from breathing slightly differently. Attending, learning how to attend to something different. We're all musicians here. We know how neurotic we can get. <laughs> Just having a breath of fresh air sometimes and looking at something from a different perspective can help someone get through that whatever they have coming up. I have, you know, someone who came to me right before their DMA uh, horn recital and um, he had been coming for a while, but he sent me an email. He said, that is the best I've ever played. So he had been coming and, and he knew that what he would get exactly for that situation. Pain is different um, and unraveling the pain cycle um, can take a longer amount of time for some people. Um, I would also say that if there's some really ingrained stress patterns, maybe around trauma, if you're looking to resolve something like that, that, that this is this is a lifestyle change. This is this takes quite a bit more time, but it's something that really works. In fact, um, they're showing you know PTSD now. One of the main things to help PTSD is a somatic practice. So. The one thing that I will say about it is that it is a practice, just like learning an instrument. You are learning how to be in touch with a different part of your brain that doesn't work the same way as your language part of your brain. And that practice, as you know, as a body mapper, is invaluable for your whole life. So. So some people really do need, you know, six to 10 hands-on sessions. Um, another violinist that I worked with, with just, she was at the end of her rope. She had tried everything else. She had done all the, uh, all the inner game of tennis books, all everything. And she came for a good solid year and she does not have the same issues anymore. Does everyone have to do that? Not necessarily, it depends on your age. And I don't mean that because it's about an age, it's about how long have you been doing that pattern? Because when I introduce a new pattern into your nervous system, you're gonna have to play with it. You're gonna have to practice it. You're going to have to make it fun. You're gonna have to integrate it. And then you're gonna have to deal with, well, when the other pattern comes back, what do you do? because those patterns don't go away. They're part of your history, but you can then learn how to have a choice. So that's why there's awareness through movement classes. I teach a lot of classes and courses online. Um, and, and for some people, that is it. They might come for like two or three sessions and then they're like, awareness through movement, Tuesday mornings, that's, that's my jam. That's what helps me work out better. That's what helps me talk to my spouse better. That's what helps me, you know, play my clarinet better. So that's what I love about this work is it is so dynamic and so personalized. Thank you. Um, I had one question as we were um, mentioning this process. What about those musicians that don't necessarily have pain, that don't have any physical challenges associated with uh, clarinet playing? How can Feldenkrais help them even succeed better, make it even easier, um, extend their, uh, their limits uh, mm. to further areas? 
um, if they can do double tonguing or single tonguing at 150 but or 180 but they can do 150 you know how, how can Feldenkrais help oh, with that's those sort of things that's such a great question <laughs> so, so there's this thing about practicing and it depends on where you are in your stage right um, there's this thing about practicing that we get sometimes to a certain point where everything is great it's working it's fantastic but what happens is that even though it's really great and maybe everything's working the way you want, the, the patterns in your nervous system, in your brain, they get less and less differentiated. They get more and more habitual. And what happens is it starts to feel less fresh. And let me just give you a really quick example. This is very dumbed down, but you'll see what I mean. Just interlace your fingers and don't think about it. And do just a couple of times, right? And now just look at your hand and notice which fingers on top, which thumb is closer to you. Half of the people in the room would say the, the right thumb and half would say the left. So that's an example of, I can double tongue any way I want, everything's great, <laughs> I'm at the top of my game, but I don't, I don't have to think about it anymore. And, and it doesn't, it starts to feel dull. You don't think about this anymore. Well, if you take the other thumb and slowly put it on top, boy, doesn't that feel different? Now, there's the rare musician that's so ambidextrous that that doesn't feel different. But how does that feel to you? Does that feel different? Absolutely. And actually, I just did this exercise about a week ago. I was wow. wondering that because uh, what makes us do the left or the right uh, the thumb right. be on top of the other fingers? And it right. does feel so different. It feels so different. And so if you apply that principle to your phrasing, you know, your ability to be in the moment and choose what you want to maybe change about what you're doing. Because we can get so habituated as musicians that I think it loses some humanity, some freshness, some spontaneity, some connection uh, to something exciting, uh, because it can become like brushing your teeth <laughs> because you don't think about it. Because that's this that we just did with your hands is the same for literally every single movement you make. There was a time when sitting here would have been really novel when you were two and a half years old. You know, the ability to sit at a table with the big kids, but we don't think about it that way anymore. But it's the same with every single possible musical idea. Um, so we want to be able to stretch ourselves as we move through our career. And actually that's one of my favorite places to work is with people who have finished their doctorates, who have finished, you know, and they're, they're like, now what? Now, how do I keep growing? Because that's, I think, when it gets really interesting, creative, um, and it becomes your own voice when you create more and more diversity within that amazing skill set that you already have. That's when you're really becoming your own artist, I think. Yeah. So, thank you. Um, ooh, you shared a lot of examples. One of my questions was going to be if you can share specific examples of people, either recovery or Feldenkrais method help, helping them, which you have already done. But um, let's go uh, to my next question in line. And that would be, what are some of the uh, resources, written material, audio material that um, musicians, clarinetists can turn to and either um, 
get acquainted with Feldenkrais and know about them, it, mm -hmm. whether it's a beginner, um, uh, an, an advanced person who is already familiar with some of the fundamental mm -hmm. Feldenkrais uh, uh, practices, what are some of the uh, material? Yeah, so I think it's important to just bring up that um, it is an experiential thing, right? So one of the best ways is just to join a class and try it out. I mean, I'll tell you that I took a class at ASU for mm, two semesters and it wasn't until the end of the second semester that I started to understand just what I was tapping into. I would go into these classes and be kind of depressed and unhappy with things. And then I would leave feeling like just a totally different person. And it took a while for that to really spark, um, like, wow, this is a huge change in me. Um, so that's one thing, as I would say, you know, Feldenkrais.com is a website that the guild runs, might be .org. Um, but that, that is a great place to find a local practitioner if you want to see um, if there's local classes, a lot of people are teaching in person again after COVID now, um, but a lot of us teaching online. So I'm actually going to start a clarinet class um, on Zoom in January um, and other musicians are welcome to come because it's not all clarinet specific. Um, but then there's a couple of books um, for singers, if anyone's also sings. Um, singing with your whole self. I have it here actually. Um, and that's a really fantastic book. Um, again, the, the exercises in there, if you get the, they're, they're great concepts and then there are, are lessons. But again, when you're reading them, it's different to read them and try to do them than having an experienced practitioner guide you through them. But there's a lot of wonderful information in there. The other one is um, Awareness Through Movement by Moshe Feldenkrais, and he wrote this specifically for the general public. Some of his other writing is very interesting, but more scientific, um, a little thicker uh, writing. Um, the, there's a book by Norman Doidge, actually two of them, but The Brain's Way of Healing is really good. So if you are in a, a really acute pain cycle and you're looking to break it, things haven't helped, that's a really good one. Um, where he talks about a, a lot of things, not just Feldenkrais, but a lot of things brain-based and very modern. Um, and then I have a blog on my website that has an entire list. Um, I have a lot of small articles that I've written for my classes on that blog, but in there, some a couple down, there's a list of um, references and more materials that, that you, can, you can explore. No, thank you for that. Um, I uh, remember about six years ago, seven years ago, I read the uh, Awareness Through Movement mm -hmm. from and I was really interested what he um, had to say about the breathing mm -hmm. um, exercise process and I discovered so many, so many different breathing exercises in different uh, sittings, standing positions that help different uh, parts of the, the breathing process. Um, so um, I'm, yeah, I'm familiar with some of some breathing exercises from him. Yeah. Uh, we will definitely include these, uh, well, the links to these books and also to your uh, blog and all those lists of materials um, in the online underneath the um, um, comment section of the recording. 
Um, and one more thing that I would like to ask you, Erin. Um, you are very active online for, for many years. I would like to ask you, besides the introduction that I, um, the, that I read about you, um, can you tell what sort of a companies, what sort of a, a person you have worked with um, in past years? Because some of some of the few I know that you have worked um, uh, uh, internationally with body mappers, mm -hmm. but um, other than that, I I have no idea if um, you know who else you worked with. Who else I work with? Yes. So yeah, thank. That's a great question. So um, I have a weekly class, and it's really it's international. I have some singers in India that come. Um, and some people in Europe. And um, I have a um, membership that is has a huge library of lessons for pretty cheap each month. So be on the lookout for that. Um, that's a pretty easy access for you to just start to explore some of these things. But I work with kids with cerebral palsy. I have um, some fantastic 91 year olds that come for lessons who are unbelievable in what they can do and their independence. Um, I have worked with some high level athletes, um, obviously musicians, but even just regular people sitting in front of a computer all day, especially post pandemic, um, a lot of not neck stuff, a lot of jaw stuff. Um, uh, you know, so people who are retired moms who are learning how to move better, pregnant women who are just in this brand new body every single day. So it's really a huge gamut beyond my love of the clarinet and, and uh, my fellow performers that I work with. So it's quite diverse. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was mostly aware of you working with professional musicians, uh, professional performers, professional uh, professors at different universities mm -hmm. here in the U United States, Canada and, and more. So that's, that, that's why I asked you the questions. So Thank we have a better view of uh, who you are and what you do. Um, is there anything you'd like to tell the audience after this, uh, well, uh, such a thorough uh, Feldenkrais and, and, and your love to the Feldenkrais and your practicing to the Feldenkrais? Is there anything you'd like to say that might help to them? Yeah, I think the main thing is just to start to listen to yourself. Musicians, by their nature, we are listeners, but a lot of the times our inner authority gets put elsewhere. And so even if you go into a Feldenkrais class or yoga class or any kind of class and you're not comfortable, do what is only comfortable for you and to really start to engage your inner authority because that's really when your life gets interesting. <laughs> I have found anyways. So um, yeah, that's my, that's my big takeaway is just really start to listen to your own movement patterns and what feels good and start to explore because it's really fun once you figure out you have this skeleton that's designed to move in all these novel ways. Thank you. Thank you for that, Irene, and thank you for accepting the invitation to this episode. Thank you for having me.